I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Those are the first three verses of Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 18, the first 20 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, July the 8th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel, the book of Acts of the Apostles, and finishing up the Gospel of Luke. So yesterday we talked about the, uh, ignoring the evidence of our eyes or, or suppressing the evidence of our eyes in order that we might hear from the Lord and that he might show us the truth behind all things, just as he did with Samuel in the anointing of David and just as he did at the, uh, with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who didn't recognize him for a period of time until he was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread together. And <clears throat> so now what we have today is, is that the Spirit of the Lord had rushed, remember, on David yesterday and remained there in the same way that it did with Jesus. Um, now the Spirit of the Lord here departs from Saul and a, hand, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So what does that mean? Does it, does it mean that God sent a tormenting spirit on Saul? Or, or does it mean that he, he no longer possessed the, um, the power of the Holy Spirit to protect him from these things who would, who would have him otherwise? And, and we know that, that the Lord didn't send this on Saul because what does it do? Well, it seeks ultimately the destruction of the Lord's anointed, David. And so for the next seven years, David, after this, uh, the scenes we see in today's lesson, David is on the run from Saul, a man previously who had prophesied and, and who had had the Spirit of the Lord. And so now we see sort of the fulfillment of something Jesus speaks of, and that, and that is, is that once you clean the house, you've got to be careful what spirits you have still in the house you don't want to leave it empty because these other things will rush in. And that's what happens with Saul. As the Holy Spirit leaves him, now he's being tormented by other spirits. And so it seems that there's some sort of madness of sorts that happens here because the um, servants say to him immediately, hey, if you just get somebody to come and play some calming music on the lyre, whenever this happens, everything will be well. And so uh, they said, let, let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he'll play it and you'll be well. So he said, sure, bring me such a person. And so one of the young men was there and said, hey, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who's skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord's with him a pretty strong statement to make there. I mean, we, we, we've not seen any of those things in David. All we've seen is a guy keeping the sheep. And now this, this guy's saying he's skillful in playing. He's a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord's with him. And that, that's, that's about as, as much um, commendation as you're ever going to see, right? I mean, this, this guy can't say enough good things about David. And, and so there, these have seen... This one of the young men who are the servants of Saul has seen something in David that other people don't seem to know. And so he said, okay, go get him. And so they, they go to Jesse, the father of David, and, and say, send us your son who's with the sheep. And so Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And so he came and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly initially. He became his armor-bearer. I mean, this is a guy he's got to trust. He's the guy who's going to be with him at his right hand in battle. 
And then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was on Saul, he took David took the lyre and played it. And so Saul was refreshed as well and, and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. And, and you know, the, everything seems to be well. And then there's this sort of break in the action because, you know, Saul had said, Hey, let him come stay with me. Let him remain in my service. Let him stay with me and serve me. And so he's going to be my right-hand man. He's going to be the guy that I depend on in all these circumstances. So he's going to be right next to me, which would, he's a servant of the king, right? And the biggest guy there. So there's a safety in that because he's not going to lead the men into battle. He's going to send the men into battle. But we know that it doesn't end well for Saul. We know that Saul indeed does die in battle against the Philistines. And so they gather their armies for battle. The Philistines do, and then we see the appearance of this giant who is over nine feet tall. He's something like nine and a half feet based on the measurements that we have. And so here comes Goliath, and he comes out, and and so each side is arrayed for battle, and Goliath comes out as the champion of the Philistines and says, send your best guy out here to fight me. Come on, bring him out here. There's no reason for us to have this whole battle. We can just do this thing mano a mano, one-on-one, and get this thing taken care of. Look, if I win, then you guys become our servants. And if y'all, if your guy wins, then we, we become your servants. How about that? And then he says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man <coughs> that we may fight together. It's, and Saul and all Israel hear these words. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. But their trust is in themselves. And what are they seeing? They're seeing exactly what the spies saw, right? They're impressed by the evidence of their eyes. They see there are giants in the land, and we can't take them. And so they refuse to enter into the land. And here they refuse to enter into the battle because what they see in Goliath is a giant that they believe to be an insurmountable obstacle. And we can't do this because if we do this, then we're all going to be servants of the Philistines. Well, I mean, in essence, they kind of were anyway in a lot of cases because they were not allowed, remember, to have swords or other implements of war. And and to get anything sharpened, even for plowing, they had to go to a Philistine to get it done. They didn't even allow Israelites to become blacksmiths. They had taken away not only their their weapons, but but their ability to even make weapons. And so here they are, and and now they won't go forward. Because we're going to find out later that only Saul and Jonathan were the ones that had any weapons at all. Everybody else just had, you know, implements whatever, tools, and they went into battle with those. And so here, uh, Goliath calls them out, and they're standing there, and they're living in fear, abject fear. They've forgotten that they serve the living God, the one who brought them out of Egypt, and the one who gave them the land, and they overran the inhabitants of the land. And they've forgotten that, and they stand here in abject fear of the giant that they can see. They, They don't have any faith, none. And nobody will step forward to go into battle against this one because the the defeat is something they can't bear. They'd rather live the way they are in the tension of, well, not being slaves but living in fear. Um, they're slaves to fear, obviously, and, and, and they prefer that rather than the risk of going up into battle and trusting the Lord. It, it's just it's a default mechanism. You know, we can see frequently what it is we actually fear. You know, sometimes it gets really clear to us what we fear. And it happens even here in this gospel. As we finish up the, the uh, book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, we're going to see the same thing. So 
Jesus appears before them and he has to say peace to you, which is wonderful, right? Shalom, y'all. <laughs> and so Jesus wishes them that shalom, but he's not wishing it, he's giving it. It should be imparted when he gives it. And they should have felt the greatest peace in the world at that moment in time because Jesus was raised from the dead. He was the firstborn of the dead, the first of the resurrection. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. I mean, as I said a couple of days ago, we know who didn't believe in resurrection, right? Um, just the way we knew who didn't believe in a virgin birth. And here we see it. They thought they saw a spirit. They, didn't, they couldn't believe that was Jesus standing before them. How could they possibly believe that? They, yes, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, Jesus, but I, but I just, I, yes. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but, but I do believe in it. But I, I don't believe it could have happened yet because we haven't reached the end times. And so it, they, they didn't believe at that moment that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. They thought they were seeing a spirit. And that, again, is something I mentioned not too terribly long ago in a sermon, and that is, is, is that resurrection's a bodily thing. It's not a spiritual thing. And, and that's too often the way liberals um, talk about the resurrection in the church today. Even leaders, even bishops in the church will talk about resurrection. And, and you have to ask, do you believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead? But Jesus is at pains to prove that it's the bodily resurrection that it's not just some spiritual experience that can be brushed off and said, I don't know whether that happened or not. No, he's making it real because he comes in and he says, here, take a look. Look at my hands, my side, <clears throat> my feet, touch and see. And then they were like, oh, they still disbelieved for joy, he says. And it was marveling. And he, so he goes, he goes even further. Have you got anything to eat? And so they brought him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it there. This is not some ethereal substance. This is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I mean, it's amazing to me that people who have uh, authority positions in the church, responsible for teaching and preaching, the Word of God, just deny this completely and say it was a spiritual thing that got them through the day. It was sort of their encouragement, their hope. They needed the resurrection. Well, they didn't seem to have needed it at all. It scared them to death. And initially they misinterpreted it, and Jesus had to prove, no, 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 this is, I'm, this is the body that was on that cross. This isn't some ghost that's appeared. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And then begins to say, this is exactly what had to happen. The Christ had to suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you're witnesses of these things. You've seen all this. And now I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So you, you might have some measure of the Holy Spirit now, but you haven't been filled with it. And I don't want you going out. It's not going to be safe for you if you don't wait until you're clothed with that power. And then he went out towards Bethany where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived. And then he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was doing so, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. When I was a kid, every single Sunday that we went to church, which was almost every Sunday, not quite maybe, but almost every Sunday, that behind the pastor in the pulpit was this sort of um, uh, little apse sort of a thing, sort of a little curved structure back there, and had a, uh, a picture on it of Jesus doing exactly this, raising his hands in blessing and then being carrying, carried up into heaven. It, it was a... a a thing for me that, that was always a source of wonder, right? I mean, it, it was either that thing that was like, what is this? Why is this here? And it was, but it was always pointing to him. It was pointing to the ascension. And so I grew up in, in that church, and it was called St. Andrews. 
in Chattanooga, and, and it was um, a Methodist church. And that, but that picture was sort of one of the most captivating things for me. This picture of Jesus ascending into the heavens with his hands raised and blessing on his people. Um, it, it's it's a compelling thing to imagine standing there watching him going up into the clouds, and, and then waiting. For him to return and, and that's exactly right he had blessed us and sent us out uh, by the power of his holy spirit and so they worshiped him as the firstborn from the resurrection and then they went to jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing god for what he had done in christ it's a it's a wonderful picture of this early church thing and now here we go they they, they saw but even when they saw they didn't believe jesus had to open their minds to understand the scriptures and, and to interpret what had happened just as he did with the disciples on the road that same day or the, that same day it, it, he had to open their minds to see these things and, and that's the point of the holy spirit the point of the holy spirit is to open our minds so that we can understand and believe these things with with a belief that's something more than believing, you know, just nonsense. No, Jesus says you're witnesses of these things. I'm not opening your minds to see that truth, that you've seen these things, including what you see today, which is the bodily resurrection. No, I'm opening your minds in order that you might understand what it all means. Because that's the most important thing. You know, it's funny because one of the interesting things that's happened even in the world of physics over the last 50 years or so is, is, is quantum physics, right? I mean, because we've, we've sort of answered at some level most of the, the other questions of physics, particle physics. We, we've got all that down pretty well. We know about waves and all that kind of stuff. And, and so we, we, we even figured out the whole difference between light, which is kind of two things at the same time. And then, but there's this quantum thing that happens, and so you get these weird things that happen at a quantum, small, small, small level that don't happen at the regular level, I mean, like if you look at something and it's traveling in a certain direction, the act of you looking at it somehow changes that. And it might appear in some random place or at least what seems random to us because our measuring devices aren't good enough to figure it out. And so we, we, we delve into this world that, um, that confuses us and it confounds scientists. It confounded Einstein. He didn't like it. Um, it's been described as spooky action at a distance, and, and God don't play dice. So <laughs> it's, nothing's left to chance. It's all got a pattern and a predictability to it. And, I, and that's what Einstein didn't like about quantum physics. Is it's, not, it's not predictable, at least at, not at the level we're able to, to measure things. It's not. And so the, the really cool thing is, is to see how many um, quantum physicists who, who were really good at what they did suddenly asked one simple question is why? And when they did, they, they left physics and they went into philosophy. And they began to, to take the principles of quantum physics and began to, to ponder those things. But to consider those things as true, and then once you've accepted that thing is true, to figure out why that thing should be true, because it defies all logic. And so it's the same with us here, and that is that we need Jesus to open our eyes to see him in all the scriptures. But we have to do so with a, with a conviction of faith that believes that he is the Son of Man, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and that, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name is the way we get into eternal life. And so Peter here has to deal with this whole thing. He is, it's, it says he was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, the vision of the, the sheet coming down from heaven with all the kinds of animals, reptiles and, and birds of the air in it. 
And then so these, these guys that Cornelius, who had also seen a vision, the, the Roman centurion, who, or the commander of the, the centurion, who's over 100, he <coughs> sent these men to go find this Simon, who was at this other Simon the Tanner's house. And so they showed up and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And so Peter's pondering the vision. The Spirit said, look, there's three guys down here. They're looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. So Peter goes down and says, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason you're coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by an angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And he invited them to be his guest. Now, that could have been a different response, right? I mean, it could be that, that the Roman centurions are, are now cracking down on this whole Christian movement because it's causing division within within Judaism, which is could lead to a, a, an insurrection, not a resurrection, but an insurrection. And so the next day, though, he got up and went with them, and, and some of the brothers from Joppa went with him down to Cornelius' house in Caesarea. And so he, he had called, Cornelius had called his relatives and close friends among them. Peter says there's a great crowd there. And, and so he comes in and, and greets them, and, and Cornelius immediately falls at his feet and worships him. Peter says, no, 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 I'm a man. That's not the way this works. Get up. And so he did. And, and then, you know, you got to figure out, Peter's standing there trying to figure out what to say. <laughs> And so he says, hey, you, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or even visit anyone of another nation. And he knows that because they've, been, they've told him that he's a God-fearing man. So he's, he's learned something about Cornelius along the way that, that this guy's close to Judaism. He's a proselyte, but he can't take that next step because the cost is too high. He'd lose his job because he couldn't be ahead of the, the cohort again. And so, but, but God has shown me he says, that I should not call any person common or unclean. So he's in, he, he pondered and was perplexed at the meaning of the vision that he was given, where God says, don't call anything uncommon that I've made clean. And so he, he says, I, I, I'm not supposed to make, I'm not supposed to call any person common or unclean. I'm not supposed to make a value judgment based on that, the, these certain things that I used to make those value judgments on. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why did you send for me? And Cornelius tells him, I got a vision too, pal. <laughs> I got a vision that, that said um, that I was supposed to, to tell somebody to come get you because my prayers had been heard and my alms had been remembered before God. So I sent for you and, and well, here you are. I mean, it, so I, I don't really know <laughs> why I sent for you is the bottom line. I, I'm not sure what the meaning of all this is. God's going to have to show us both that meaning. And I, and I think that's something that we, we need to be careful about. We need to not leap to conclusions. Sometimes we need to wait and allow God to show us. I mean, he, he gives us something. He gives us a word, maybe he gives us a hope. I, I got a vision um, a million years ago now. It's been 20-something years, 25 years almost. I went to a worship conference in Pauly's Island. And I'd never been to Pauly's Island in my life, and I'd never been part of anything remotely like a charismatic worship experience. And, and so I was encouraged to uh, raise my hands when I sang and things like that. And it was, that was wildly uncomfortable for me, way out of my comfort zone. And so anyway, but, but the Lord continued to press me on that and to, to convince me that this was not, you know, of the devil or something. And so I did. And then I, Later, I was working, doing some work in Tampa, some consulting work, and I was walking around one afternoon just to get some exercise. And I just suddenly had this walking, waking vision of being in Pauly's Island and being um, on staff 
in Pauley's Island after I'd gone to seminary. And I, I wouldn't even, I was sort of talking about seminary, but I wasn't really contemplating going right away. But then ended up in that very position several years later. So sometimes the fulfillment of the vision that God gives us waits for the proper time. And so we've just got to wait and not leap to conclusions and begin to tell people the meaning of things that we honestly don't know the meaning of yet. Sometimes we just have to wait. 